Revisited, a podcast that explores our relationship with the natural world. It consists of interviews, stories, and discussions that highlight the notion that nature is not a place one goes to, but rather a place one is already a part of, that we are nature. Today, we would like to welcome Jeffrey Ryan, author hiker, photographer, and historian to the podcast. When Jeffrey isn't trekking or chasing down a story, he loves sharing his adventures with people who love the outdoors. Jeffrey is the author of two books on the Appalachian Trail, often referred to as the AT. Appalachian Odyssey, 28 Hikes on America's Trail and blazing ahead, Benton McKay and Myron Avery and the rivalry that built the Appalachian Trail. The AT is truly one of America's great treasures. And with the increase in the number of people attempting to hike it, I thought that learning more about its history and the challenge it presents would make a wonderful episode. So who better than Jeffrey Ryan to join me and talk about the making of the Appalachian Trail. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and this is Nature Revisited. We're rolling again. Great. I want to thank Jeffrey Ryan for being here and talking about the making of the Appalachian Trail. Thanks for having me on. It's been great. I enjoy your show. And I meant to tell you, your music choices are like, when I heard Low Spark, I was like, are you kidding me? I've been listening to that lately. And Kind of Blue is you know, one of my all-time favorites. So, and you've written Two, two books. About the Appalachian Trail. I have. So, two and a half. So today, we're going to talk about the making of the Appalachian Trail, because we both will agree, when it comes to trails, it really is America's trail. It holds a special place for people who hike it and for those people who don't. Let's start back at the beginning. Okay. Who came up with this idea of making the trail, and why did they kind of choose between Georgia and Maine? The story of the Appalachian Trail, for a lot of people, begins in 1921, when a fellow named Benton Mackay introduced the idea to everybody. But you actually have to back up a little bit before that to find out where the idea came from. Two different things. So it was presented publicly in 1921 for the first time. But the seeds for developing the trail came way back in Benton Mackay's childhood. So when he was 14 years old, his father, who was a fantastic inventor in the realm of theater, 
a great mind, a genius, actually. He died basically due to shame. He was trying to raise money to build a giant theater for the Columbian Exposition of 1893. And when the funding got pulled out from under him, he was still trying to scramble to get it built, but he was against the deadline of the fair. At about one-third completion, the whole funding shut off. The project, which he had raised $800,000 for, which was an incredible sum in those days, ended up being sold for scrap for under $3,000. So he was a broken man, and he died about six months after his failure. The family had lost all their money due to other circumstances, and this kid was very depressed. And he actually found solace in the woods of New England near his home in Massachusetts and made a connection very early on in his life about the restorative qualities of nature, of just being in the woods, how it can change your frame of mind. So fast forward to 1920, when he had married a woman named Betty Stubbs, Betty Stubbs Mackay, and she had battled depression most of her life and tragically committed suicide. And he was asked by a friend to come spend some time on his farm in northern New Jersey. And it was during that time when that restorative quality of nature theme came up in him again. And he thought there should be a trail for people to go and, and reconnect with nature and find the restorative qualities. There should be a refuge. And he presented this idea at the breakfast table to the friend that was entertaining him. That was, And his friend was the head of the American Institute of Architects and told Mackay that if he wrote an article about this great idea, that he would publish it in his magazine. And so in August of 1921, the idea for the Appalachian Trail was introduced to the world. So during that time, these ideas don't just come out of nowhere. Correct. W were there a lot of trails? There were um, a fair number of trails. The most obvious ones were in New Hampshire, where in what is now the White Mountain National Forest area, there were a lot of country inns where people would come from Boston, New York by train and go to these inns, and the inns had trails to these viewpoints up in the mountains. They were usually what we call up and back, so you'd hike up to the view, isn't that nice, let's go back to the inn. In the early 1900s, there was a fellow named Sturgis Prey who studied under Frederick Law Olmsted, and he was a member of the Appalachian Mountain Club, and he came to the White Mountains and had this epiphany that the trails should be interconnected. With a landscaper's eye, he recognized that maybe having a grander plan for trails was a good idea. And so he actually ended up having young Benton Mackay come out with him and build trails. So Mackay got the idea for trails mostly from Sturgis Prey. Sturgis Prey was a great influence on Mackay. So in addition to the White Mountains, there was also the first long-distance hiking trail, really, was the Long Trail in Vermont. That already existed when Mackay came up with the idea for the longer trail, the interstate trail. Everything kind of came together. So you can see it kind of gestating in this young man and building up to 
the idea for launching the Appalachian Trail. So how did that initial idea, how did that become part of a governmental program? It was a long, slow process. Actually, what ended up happening was it may have not taken off as an idea other than within the landscape or the architect community. But there was a guy named Raymond Torrey who was a journalist that had an article called The Long Brown Path in the New York Post. And he published a rendition of Mackay's original map of the Appalachian Trail, which really lit a fire under people and made the vision become a reality. And I always contend that you can describe things in words, but having that visual was, I think, key to marrying the idea and the reality. Then, as originally proposed, the trail only went from Mount Mitchell to the top of Mount Washington. And it, it was later that the idea to extend it south to Georgia and north to Katahdin was proposed. But the idea really started taking off in the early 1920s when some pieces of trail were claimed as part of the Appalachian Trail very early on because they'd already been built. So for example, the the path over the top of the White Mountains, they just put white blazes on it and called that section part of the Appalachian Trail. And the first original section of trail was built near Bear Mountain on the Palisades down in uh, New York on the Hudson. And that was a 17-mile stretch, and that was done in the early I think uh, mid mid 1920s. So the trail was kind of built in sections at different points. It was. It wasn't like someone said, "Well, let's start here and we build this continuous trail." They had a rough idea of where it should go, and the real impetus for getting the trail built, because of the fits and starts, and I talk about this in my book, Blazing Ahead, is that Mackay was a great idea guy, but he wasn't a great execution guy. He wanted to be. He wanted to be the guy who got it built, but he didn't have the, he didn't have the personality type to be the one. So in 1929, the Appalachian Trail Conference, as it was then known, hired a 29-year-old from Lubeck, Maine, named Myron Avery. And it was Avery who took the reins and basically willed this thing to get built. He was a one-man show, and he just insisted on this being built. And not only did he insist upon it being built, but he insisted on being in the field deciding where it would go. He insisted on what kind of paint would be used to do the blazes. He would chastise people if they didn't put the blazes on particularly well or in the right size. He wrote the guidebook, he oversaw the development of the maps, et cetera, et cetera. And it was he that basically brought the trail to fruition. What were some of the major obstacles of the AT when it was first being built? Well, there were several, the first of which was securing the land. In some cases, it was state land. In many cases, it was private land. The main section was built largely during the Depression. And it was Avery's idea to go to hunting and fishing camp owners and say, hey, um, you guys have busy seasons when the fishing's great and when the hunting's great, and you've got these bridge seasons with nobody staying with you. And wouldn't it be great if you gave us an easement for this hiking trail and people would 
come and stay with you and give you money to eat and stay overnight. And almost all of them said yes to that. So he got easements to build the trail. He also took advantage of existing logging roads that made placing the trail a lot easier from the get-go. So that, that was one thing that he orchestrated that was really quite brilliant. But in other cases, they had to work with landowners and state park owners and such and, and get permission to build it. It was largely funded through their own fundraising efforts. The federal government didn't come in until the very end, really. The CCC got involved in some sections, particularly when national forests and parks really started coming into uh, being in the East. That helped them, too, particularly in places like the Smokies and Shenandoah and places like that. What they came up with for a, an idea to get it built and maintained is still the model, which is organized hiking clubs in various jurisdictions, have them take ownership of where the trail is placed and the maintenance of the trail and have them be the stewards of the trail. And that model has been replicated many times over for regional trails, national trails. So when was the AT finally completed and at what cost? Um, it was finally completed in 1934 and it's really hard to get any clear idea around costs, they basically bootstrapped the whole thing. It didn't cost much in terms of federal money or state money because initially they were preoccupied with just building a trail, getting the easement, building the trail. What that meant was basically cutting a three-foot wide path and putting marks on trees. The challenges weren't what they are now because they didn't have the number of people using the trail, so erosion wasn't really quite the issue that it is now. But of course, since then, a lot of money has been raised and is put into trail maintenance from beginning to end. It costs a lot to keep it open and running. The trail crews get some support. They get in-kind donations for lumber and bolts and you know shovels and that kind of stuff, but it's, it's grunt work. There was a huge effort in the 70s and 80s and even the 90s to move the trail where necessary to get it within a, an approved corridor and where there were places where it was still on roadways to get it up into the woods and back up onto the ridgeline on protected land. So there's a, there's a linear federal park from end to end. You kind of answered my next question. Who maintains the AT? And does one have to have a permit to hike it? Great questions. Where it's not on national or state land, the maintenance is achieved through a partnership of the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, which it is now called. It used to be called the Appalachian Trail Conference when it first started, because it was literally a yearly meeting, a conference. They sort of oversee the couple dozen trail maintaining clubs, which work in partnership with the national forests and the national parks and the state parks to ensure that the trail is maintained. And I should also mention that it's not just the trail, not just the footpath that gets maintained, but there are also things like installing solar outhouses or making sure the lean-tos are kept in good shape or 
the trail needs to be trimmed back, the brush needs to be cleared, you know, to keep it safe. So it is, it's a partnership, it's mostly managed by the clubs. The clubs are, I believe, best suited to do it because it's in their own backyard and they know it better than anybody. And they, they assign trail monitors to a mile or two of quote unquote their section of trail and they report in and say, geez, we have a bridge that's rotting out or we you know, could really use to move the trail over here. It's getting washed out, that kind of thing. You kind of gave us a, an idea of how popular this trail is becoming. How many people attempt, particularly after or even during the pandemic? I don't know, maybe it increased. What are we talking about in the number of people that are attempting to complete it? Well, there are two different figures that jump out. The first, the first one is how many people hike even a mile or more of the AT a year, and that's somewhere north of 3 million people a year. Part of that figure is because some areas of the trail are very accessible. For example, Shenandoah, where the trail and Skyline Drive coexist for 108 miles. The trail actually crosses something like 70-something times because the park is so narrow and the ridgeline is the park for all intents and purposes. So you could literally get out of the car and walk a half a mile and turn around and walk back to the car and that counts. Uh, in terms of people starting out and the pandemic, good question. So the pandemic, the official stance during the height of COVID was that the trail was shut down. Official policy was please don't hike the trail this year, don't congregate, don't camp in the lean-tos, don't use, you know, they, they just wanted to help mitigate the idea of the, of the pandemic traveling up and down the 2,000-mile stretch. There were a number of people who still did it, which was their prerogative. They, they can't, there's no effective way to really shut down the trail. In a general fashion, several hundred people will attempt it, between 300, about 340, somewhere in there, a year do it. It's, it's roughly 75% of the people who start do not make it. It's a big reality check. It's challenging. It's not, as Bill Bryson would have you believe, a walk in the woods. It is up and down mountains with a pack on. You know, for some people, it's awesome. And you, you do it, whatever it takes, you just persevere. It becomes a way of life if you let it, if you want it to be. And for others, they get partway into it and think, what the hell have I done? I want to go home and sleep in a bed and eat a cheeseburger. Now let's talk a little bit about the preparation if one is attempting to complete the trail. Talk about how long it takes. What do you have to consider if you're considering walking the Appalachian Trail? There are many things to consider. Um, the real considerations are how much experience and comfort do you have being outside camping on the ground or in a hammock, um, as some people do. How in shape are you how, to begin with? How, how much perseverance are you hardwired for? Is food going to be the thing that makes or breaks you? You know, the diet can be monotonous. There are, there are things that, you, that might predispose you to not being able to finish. On the other hand, you may learn that those things aren't as important to you as you thought they were, 
and you may find yourself pushing through some things that you are very pleased that you did. Um, I often write about this that oftentimes it's really funny about hiking. You're, you're going up on a steep climb and, and you, you can, no matter how many years you've been doing this, get to this point where you start asking yourself, why are you doing this? For me, that voice rarely happens anymore. I'm just glad to be out. But when it does happen, it almost always happens that you come up over the top of the mountain and see this phenomenal view. And all of that stuff that you were feeling on the way up, my legs hurt, <laughs> I, I have to stop. You forget about all that. And you just say, oh my god, this view up here is incredible. And I could stay up here all afternoon. You find the answer at the top of the hill. Absolutely. Uh, the best views come after a long, hard climb. And I, I really have sort of adopted that philosophy that when I'm in a down place or a tough place, I, I kind of expect that things are going to get better because most often they do. That manifests itself so many times out on the trail. When I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, we had 17 days of rain in a row. I was the optimist that held on the longest. Even I, after 17 days of rain, said, tomorrow we walk out, I'm done, we can't do it. And the next morning we woke up and the sun came out and it didn't rain for the next 21 days and it was the most phenomenal hiking in my life. So if one were to start at the southern tip, when does one normally do that? Late then, March, early April. And then if you were going to go the other direction from Maine, when do you generally start that? About the same. I mean, you, you, it's, it's late March, early April, or, or um, in the case of coming southbound, you actually technically have to wait for Katahdin to open. In some years, like right now, we're in late April here, the mountain's still loaded with snow. They won't let anybody up there. So sometimes what people do is they start southbound in April and then come back and climb Katahdin later to finish the trail. The one thing I think we didn't talk about were the pros and cons of section hiking versus long, long hiking. The easy way I think to approach it is this. I love through hiking. It's an amazing experience. But the one thing that I can say is you can try to deny that you have a deadline, but you have a deadline. And it, it's in the back of your head, no matter what. It's, I have to finish this trail by X date. You've either formally established it in your head or informally it's out there because of the weather. So you're set up for, for doing this epic thing in X amount of time. It propels you forward in fundamentally good ways and in some not so good ways. And the cases where it doesn't are when you really wish you could have stopped and sat at that viewpoint longer, or you wish you could have stayed at that campsite that night, but it's only two in the afternoon, so you have to keep going. Or you wish you could have spent an extra day in town to eat more and let your body recoup a little more, but you really got to keep going. And there's this mindset 
that gets into your head, it's called a zero day. And what it means is a zero mileage day. And oftentimes what happens is, even if you're taking a zero and you think you're taking a zero, it, it can happen, it's happened to me, where it's three in the afternoon and you all of a sudden this guilt, like I haven't made forward progress. And you all of a sudden just pack everything up and go two miles down the trail, just so you don't have to take a zero. And when you do a section, you're just, you're doing a finite section. You're not going through it on the way to somewhere else. You're in it. And it might have been a function of age and maturity that this happened to me, but I really felt more rooted in where I was and what I was doing when I was section hiking than I was when I was through hiking because it was a finite thing. It's like we're going to hike through New Jersey and we're going to be out for 12 days and we only have to make X amount of miles a day. And also, I found that I could dig into things like the geology and the history and all that stuff. But, but also, there's the wear and tear on your body. And what ends up happening on a through hike is you start out in whatever shape you're in, you get better and you get better and you're doing longer mileage days and you're rebounding and, man, you're ripped. You've never been in this shape in your life. And then the day comes when you start feeling things are starting to not rebound quite the way they were and your body's actually breaking down because you've been doing this every day for four and a half, five and a half, six and a half months. You know, I, my body is not doing what it was doing 500 miles ago. Let's talk a little, maybe a little bit about some of the history. Who was the first person to finish? Do we know? We don't. There are several claims to it. One of the most famous ones is a guy named Earl Schaefer, who did it in 1948. At the time, he didn't realize that what he was suffering from was what is now known as PTSD. But he had come back from World War II and realized that he needed to do something for his soul and got this idea of hiking the AT end to end. So he ended up doing it in 1948. My friend Mills Kelly, who's a professor of history down at George Mason, has been looking into some other people who might have done it sooner. One was a man and a woman that were southbounders in the 30s. They didn't want a lot of notoriety about what they were doing, so most of it was under the radar. But he's encountered a lot of evidence to show that it's likely that they were really the first through hikers. Earl Schaefer is and was a legend and deserves a lot of credit for what he did. Not only the, the fact that he did it the first time, but he did it again 50 years later, got so discouraged that he wanted to go home and decided in a shelter that he was going to call it quits. Uh, there was one other person in the shelter that night. It was a 20-something-year-old. Earl asked him what his trail name was, and the kid said, the spirit of 48. And he said, why do you call yourself that? And he said, there was this dude named Earl Schaefer that hiked the trail in 1948, and Earl couldn't believe it. 
Long story short, the kid talked him into the hiking the rest of the trail with him and being his chaperone, and Earl did it. He finished the trail, and I believe he died a year or two after he finished, but he did, he did finish it a second time. Another story that's pretty amazing is the first woman to finish the trail. Can you share that with us? Yeah, the, the, most, the most famous thru-hiker is Grandma Gatewood. There's a tremendous book about her, Grandma Gatewood's Walk. Grandma Gatewood had, Ruff doesn't even begin to describe it, just a, a hellacious marriage, and basically walked out the door and, and did the trail in tennis sneakers to escape this really abusive relationship. And she did it more than once. She would just disappear and not tell anyone where she was going. But she was a real character, and uh, it's definitely worth reading about her. I believe she just had a bag. Yeah, just a bag, no like a bandana bag. with yeah, stuff yeah. wrapped in it and asked people for food. And, and I do. think she was fairly old, too, at the time. Yeah, yeah. She, and then she went back and did it again. <laughs> and, of course, back then, we like to think of when, when they were old, they were really old. But, you know, I think she was probably in her 60s anyway. What originally got you interested in hiking to start with? And then the AT, and why did you want to write about it? Wow, great questions. I always loved the outdoors. My mom, she wanted me to be well-versed in Henry David Thoreau at an early age. In fact, I remember being uh, 12 years old and having her pull the copy of Walden off the bookshelf at home and handed it to me and said, this is the most important book you will ever read. And of course, I was enthralled. So I, I had an early awareness of an appreciation for, I think, the idea of walking and being in the woods. And also, my parents had me camped out back. They wanted me to be comfortable being outdoors from a very young age, and there, was, there were a lot of woods behind our house. So what might you say to someone who's contemplating the AT? Because, you know, there are a lot of people who think about it. What, what might you want to share with them, the, the, the pros and the cons? Well, I will say this. You won't know what the cons are if you never try it. I urge people to stop thinking about it and do it because there are always things that can get in your way but it's like anything else important to you. It would be far better to go and try to hike a section and see if it's for you or not than to wake up someday and realize, I wish I had done this. I think there are places that are less aggressive than others that you can try. There are ways that you can try carrying a lighter pack and just have someone drop you off at one end of a 10-mile stretch and pick you up at another and see if it's for you. There are some several ways to do it. If you want to do it all in one shot, that's one prerogative. If you want to do it in sections, that's another prerogative. My greatest advice of all is learn about it, read about it, try it. Definitely don't just show up intending to do it all without having at least a shakedown cruise to get used to setting your tent up, to get used to using your cook set, to get used to what foods are easy to prepare. 
how to turn your headlight on and off. The, the other piece of advice, and people ask me this all the time, is how do you train for it? And all I can say is the only way you can train for hiking is to do aerobic exercise. There is no way you can emulate what the trail does to your feet, your ankles, your knees. You're moving in ways that stair climbers and bicycles can't emulate. So I've heard from some hikers, because I live in New Hampshire and they come through there over the years, that there are more scenic trails, but there are none that when completed are more satisfying than the AT. Do you agree, and why do you think that is? I agree. The day-to-day challenges that the AT bring you, there, there's something about it. It puts a, it puts a hook in your craw. Um, there's a reason I've done the 100-mile wilderness five times, you know, and, and I'll do it again gladly. It just challenges you on a different level, I think. The AT is a real test, and, and it tests you because you do a lot of little ups and downs instead of great big ones all at once. It sounds kind of funny, but those rolling hills kind of humble you a little bit more. It's kind of hard to describe. Having grown up in New England, I just feel this comfort level of being in the woods, and you're largely in the woods, and it has its own grandeur. I mean, I've done, I've done hiking in New Zealand, too, and again, um, jaw-dropping splendor, but there's something that always beckons me back to the AT. Yeah, it does really seem to be an American treasure. Yeah. The way it was created, the way it's maintained. Do you have anything else that you would like to share that I might have missed about the history of the trail, why people, what makes it special, your relationship with it? Anything you would like to make sure that we don't miss here on this? Yeah, the one chapter of the Appalachian Trail story that I think is really instructive on a, on a variety of levels is... Myron Avery and Benton Mackay had a falling out, and it all really came to a head in 1934. And I go into great detail in my book. It came about because of the existence of Skyline Drive. Skyline Drive encroached on the trail. In fact, it actually was built over part of the trail. It caused a great rift between Mackay and Avery. When Mackay originally proposed the trail, one of the most important things to mention is he created it because he wanted it to be a refuge from everyday life and a place for people to reconnect with nature and, and reevaluate where they were in their lives and what was important. And the very idea of having a road built over the top of it was precisely against what he was establishing the trail for. And Avery's response was, after a, a short period of consideration, was, I need to finish the trail. I need to build a contiguous trail. Whether it's next to a road or not is moot. I just need to finish this trail. And so we'll just get the Park Service to move the trail over. And Mackay was, was greatly hurt by that and felt that this is ridiculous. And so they got into a squabbling match, which took place over about a year and a half. 
it's important to understand what was going on in the country then because between 1910 and 1935, the percentage of households with car ownership went from 10 to 90%. And so roads were being built everywhere. And one of the places where roads were wanting to be built was in national parks and national forests. People wanted to get out into the country. And at the time, there were 12 skyline drives proposed, including through the top of the Green Mountains, through the top of the White Mountains, through the Massanutten Range to the west of Shenandoah, over the Shenandoah, of course, the Great Smokies. All these areas were being inundated with these proposals to have these roads coming through. And Mackay saw the writing on the wall and said, hold it, can we find some common ground here? There was no common ground between Avery and Mackay. Mackay, he was actually pushed out by Avery. So what's important about this is the trail was built, the trail exactly as, as Avery wanted it to be. It was built as a contiguous trail, was completed as we all know. But what's also important to know is what happened after Mackay left. And when Mackay left, he became a proponent for wilderness. He became one of the spearheaders of this getting uh, wilderness areas established. He could have just gone home and licked his wounds and, and called it good, but he actually started two great movements in his life. One was the Appalachian Trail and the second one was the wilderness movement. enjoyed this episode with Jeffrey Ryan and that it will inspire you to get outside and go for a hike. I also hope it will inspire you to share Nature Revisited with friends, family, and colleagues. The music for this episode is Booker T and the MGs, Green Onion. Nature Revisited is pleased to announce something new to the podcast. It's a sponsorship program where we are now offering our listeners and supporters an opportunity to show their support by sponsoring an episode of Nature Revisited. As you know, central to Nature Revisited's message is the notion that we are nature. We also believe that we are a community. Just as communities thrive by its members acting in mutual support of one another, we invite our growing community of listeners to support the production of Nature Revisited. By contributing, you can help us continue to invite the diverse variety of guest experts, activists, thinkers, and creators that make Nature Revisited such a relevant yet unique podcast. So if you're interested in doing a sponsorship, please visit our website, nordenproductions.com slash support. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, productions.com slash support. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden 
and Charles Gagan, and I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature. Thank you.